We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to this edition of the People I Sort of Know podcast. I'm Chase Parham, and today's guest is Neil White. Neil is the owner of Nautilus Publishing here in Oxford. He's also the creator of the Ole Miss Baseball National Championship photo book, coffee table book that is available in stores now. It's a great compliment to uh, my book, Resilient Rebels. You really should buy both of them. We talk about that in the show. But Neil, uh, he, uh, he put that thing, thing together very fast. It is an excellent book. And we're going to talk a lot about that today. We're going to talk about the book process, what he and I have both uh, kind of experienced over the last few months, and how we hope our books have uh, resonated and been great additions to uh, just the memories of Ole Miss baseball winning the national championship there back in June at the College World Series in Omaha. So we're going to hit a lot about that. Also, uh, we're going to talk about Neil, uh, his, his past history with writing and publishing, he is the author of In the Sanctuary of Outcast, a memoir from, uh, I guess, about 13, 14 years ago now. It is about his time in a Louisiana federal prison, a prison that also uh, housed leprosy patients. Yes, that is correct. If you have not heard from that, heard of that before, but it is an excellent book. I recommend that. So we go through that writing process a little bit and things that that struck me from it as I read that book as well. So uh, Neil's an interesting guy. He's one of the uh, the reasons that my book is out, he gave me a lot of confidence. I, I texted him when Ole Miss had beaten Arkansas in the College World Series and said I had a book idea to get his advice. And he's been a, a great shepherd through this process. He's become a friend as well. So I, I think you'll find this interesting as, uh, as he tells some stories, talks about what he's working on now. And then we talk a little uh, Ole Miss fan base, a little Ole Miss baseball in the process as well. So let's get to it again on this edition of People I Sort of Know. Here is Nautilus Publishing's Neil White. Neil White with Nautilus Publishing now joining us here on the Raptors Music and Food Hotline. Neil, I've been making this, uh, telling this story the whole time. I put it in the book. I had my idea for mine. I sent you a text, I guess, the semifinals of the uh, of the College World Series, almost had just beaten Arkansas and said, hey, I got an idea. And you told me, yeah, me too. Just don't jinx it. Shut up and uh, let's talk next week. It didn't get jinxed. It it, it worked out, and uh, you've uh, you've got yours out. I've got mine out. We're going to talk a little books today. We're going to talk about yourself. I appreciate you uh, 
you joining me, but it's been a it's been a pretty fun process since June 26, hasn't it? It has been. And thank you for having me on, Chase. I appreciate it. Congratulations on your book. Uh, finished reading it on the airplane coming back this weekend is great. Great job. Uh, wonderful uh, capturing of the narrative of this extraordinary season. And uh, so, yeah, yeah, let's talk about the books. And and it's really fascinating. I think yours is a uh, is a, a traditional narrative book that that captures the spirit of of this season uh, with with some photographs and ours is a, a photographic telling of that great narrative with with a little bit of narrative. So I think they're, they're a great complement to one another. So you spent your professional life and writing and publishing and different things in, the, in this avenue. But for this particular book, when did the idea came of, come about? What sort of at what point did it go, hey, this makes sense? Or was it more about just simply the the, the, the team providing an avenue to even make it a possibility? Well, that, that's a that's a great question. And, uh, you know, always we're looking for opportunities to publish uh, great Southern books, great sports books. We're, we're pretty much a nonfiction house. And uh, when the Rebels were number one and going in against Tennessee, I had high <laughs> hopes that, you know, boy, this, this could be the year. And then uh, shortly thereafter, I said, no, this is not going to be the year, <laughs> as I think so many of us did. Yeah. And, and so when we when we were selected last and uh, we did uh, so well in Miami and then so well uh, at Southern uh, and we were headed to Omaha and looked like we were on a roll. I thought, my gosh, if there, if by some chance Arkansas doesn't knock us off again like they have in the in the last few years, this would make a great book. And I didn't know what form it would come in. I was probably thinking more along the lines of what your book was. But you and I were not the only two people who had this idea. Sure. Uh, so Mike again and uh, uh, Josh McCoy uh, from Athletics. Uh, called me and said, I hear you've pitched athletics a, a book. We have one too. And I said, well, there's no reason to not work together. Let's let's meet and see if we can't do this together. And uh, so I, I was I was stunned at the quality of the photographs that Josh and his team put together. They're just uh, exceptional. And so we've published a lot of coffee table books with a lot of beautiful photographs in it. Uh, some of these in this particular book, are as beautiful and as artistic mm -hmm. as we've ever published. They just happen to be about baseball. And so um, we decided, and I know you have a story about how you turned your book around. We essentially had three and a half weeks to finish our book in order to get it to press because press time is so tight and have it back in time for the holidays. I have never, ever turned around a book in three and a half weeks, uh, but we did it. And it's 90% photographs, about 10% narrative. Everybody kicked in from your buddy, Jeff Roberson, to, to the folks at Athletics. Um, and so uh, it, it sort of came together happenstance. And, uh, and so that's, that's how ours, ours came to be. And I, um, I actually saw Mike again walking down the street uh, when we were on <laughs> the last home football game. And I said, I apologize for being such a taskmaster, but we had an eight hour window to get in the queue to get this thing printed. There was no time to extend it. So Micah and the crew, they had not even approved the book. And I sent it to press in, oh, wow. order, in order to get the press time reserved. 
because I knew three days later when they gave us the final proof, we could replace up to five or six pages without it penalizing us. And so uh, Micah said, we, we need, we don't need another week. And I said, I'm sending it to press. And he, he went through the roof. <laughs> I got calls from you had the, uh, the athletics attorney. I got calls from Keith Carter. And I said, guys, I told you this when we met, this was a, our chance to get in the queue. We can still make some changes, not massive, but we can still do it. And then we, we tinkered with it and replaced a few pages the following Monday. But uh, not only have I never published one that was this quick of a turnaround, but I've never been such an unpleasant person to work with in my life because we didn't have a choice. If we didn't get it, this thing would be out in January. And as you well know, uh, you know, about 75% of the books sell mm-hmm. October and December. So it was, uh, it was not uh, the easiest project, but boy, it turned out just great. You told me we were in Jackson that you essentially had the email ready. You had the pitch ready as soon as they they won the title there on that uh, on that afternoon. But at that point, did you realize the turnaround that was going to be required? Yes, that's why I sent it uh, as the players were running on the field. There was no time to waste. So yeah, I, I sent it to Keith and uh, sent it to Denson Hollis and uh, said this may be impossible, but let's talk about it and see what we can do. I've and known John. Shortly thereafter, I met with you and uh, said, yours is going to be virtually impossible as well. But damn, you didn't do it. <laughs> yeah. I, and I actually took five days longer than I should have. I, uh, I was, I think my original deadline was September 1st, and I simply wasn't done. It took until September 5th to, to, to get that done. I, Carol helped out there to make that possible. But, you know, Josh, I've worked with him the whole time. He's been at Ole Miss, and his pictures and his photography and art have always been incredible he's done a good job since day one when he got here and I tell you what I what I love about your book is simply giving him that type of avenue to showcase the ability where we're not just looking at a picture in a story or even a photo gallery of a game but when you see where he's seriously created that narrative over the course of a season in photos it's something that not a lot of photographers are doing I'm glad that the Ole Miss fan base has a little deeper appreciation of really the talent they have in him that's not at a lot of places. I'm not sure that was overly you know, emphasized in a day-to-day level like it can be in your book. You know, I agree. Uh, Ole Miss has always had uh, a, a great photography department that was formerly led by Robert Jordan, but the the athletics photography, and uh, maybe to, uh, to uh, smooth the ruffled feathers of Mike again, we have the best video program country, yes. and that is, that is almost entirely uh, due to Micah and, and that team there. But these photographs are unbelievable. And uh, here's what's interesting about Josh. He said, don't worry, we can get this done in time. I've made the selects already. He said he had selected his best images from each game. And he sent me the galleries. And they told him 20,000 photographs. It was more than 20,000 images. (laughs) So it's like, uh, we got to narrow this down. So I went through one time and picked my selects, and then he said, I'd like to replace some. So we, we narrowed it down from 20,000 selects to about 220 that made the book. What makes a good book like that? What makes a good coffee table picture book? Well, first and foremost is you can't do it without great, raw, artistic talent. And mm-hmm. Josh and his team provided that. They There were... There were there were thousands of images that were good enough to be in this book. Um, the the second thing is 
coverage in that, you know, nobody skipped games, nobody quit photographing the baseball team because they weren't winning. So we had great artistic imagery and we had all the photographs we needed to create this, this book. And then I, I would say uh, the third and fourth, which is probably a tie, is you have to have some narrative to guide the reader that doesn't intrude on the beautiful imagery. And I think we put that together very well. And then the, the equally important is the art direction. How, how do you design this book and make it look great? And what we did in this book, and you'll, you'll notice that probably 70% of the pages are two-page spreads that bleed on all sides. It's just the full image with maybe a caption if there needed to be some explanation. So you've got, you've got, uh, you know, baseball pictures that are presented as if it's an art book. Mm-hmm. There's also, so those, those, yeah. those are the one, those are the things that I think make a great coffee table book. It's a very different story in the kind of book that you're doing, but that's, that's what I think are the top traits of a good coffee table book. It just should be a beautiful experience that people love flipping through. And I think this meets that standard. It also hits such a commemorative nature because you have the essay from Mike where you get some of his words and a a, a beloved character, a coach now who has cemented his legacy in so many different ways, a, a complicated character. And you get to kind of follow what he thought throughout that process through his essay in your book. And then also with Tim doing a forward, somebody who, you know, we, it's rare that you run across somebody who sort of lives up to everything you hear and that you constantly go around and everything you sort of hear about Tim is it matches that. So to have sort of those two guys cemented is the, the, the printed words for it. It does add an extra element as well. Absolutely. And they were both so great to do that. And uh, uh, Tim, Tim and, and coach Bianca both were just uh, fabulous and in, in getting it turned around as quickly as they did. And to give you a, uh, just another of the, hundreds of anecdotes about uh, Tim Melko and what a nice guy he is. We had uh, a book signing on a Friday before a football game, like you're going to have the Friday before the Alabama game at Square Books. And we had lines around the corner because Coach Bianco and Tim were there to sign. And Richard Howorth, who owns Square Books, knew that the line was not going to be through by the time we had allotted. And he didn't want a bunch of angry customers who had been standing there in line for two hours and not get books signed. Coach Bianco had to get back for practice and recruits. And he went up to Tim and said, is there any way you could stay a little bit longer? And he just looked up and said, I'll stay here until everyone who wants a book signed has one. I mean, that's just the kind of guy he is. You don't think they came for you, Neil? You don't think they showed up and want to make sure they got got your John Hancock on that book? Well, I had two cousins and, a, and another distant relative who came in for me, but uh, I think the lines were probably for the coach and the captain. Yeah. <laughs> you you grew up with it. It's been in your DNA the whole time, but what is sort of your relationship with Ole Miss sports at this point in your, in, in your life? Well, um, I, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of, of all the sports, uh, you know, and uh, particularly partial to, to baseball and football, but I am a uh, fifth-generation Ole Miss grad. Uh, everybody before me also graduated from law school. Uh, I came here in 79, and uh, it was a great place to park back then. Tuition was $417 a semester, so I stuck around for about six years. So I know people from uh, a huge time frame that I was in college with. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just so proud of the, the history 
um, both the good and the bad and where we've come and what the school has become in, in terms of just uh, a fun place to be a fan. Um, and then, then you add to it this rich history, uh, some of which is not so favorable about our state, but is about our, our school. Uh, I've co-written a couple of books and edited a couple of books for Robert Kayat, who was on the 1959 and 1960 baseball team, both of whom won the SEC, um, but they weren't allowed to go to postseason because they might uh, sure. play the team that had a black player. That was the governor's mm-hmm. rule. Um, and so Robert's 1960 team, where he was the captain and the catcher, he uh, that team went 22 and three and were primed to win the College World Series had they gone gone forward. And he wrote a great passage to Coach Bianco and the team uh, and put it in the front of the book and sent it to him that that this season for those still living members of that team, it was, it was as if they had won the world series for them because they never got a chance to do it. And so this was, you know, this was a full 62 and 63 years after those teams were told, no, you can't compete because we don't want you playing against a black player. They finally found felt like Ole Miss had, had done something that, They'd never had a chance to do, and it and it felt like to them they did it not just for themselves, but also for those teams that could never go before. Yeah, it was what's so rich about the story. It's not even necessarily the losing streak in the middle of the season and the postseason run and all those things, which does it makes for a really narrative, interesting thing when you consider the coaching change possibilities and all those. But and I, and I've used this term. I used it in, a, in a, I guess a reprint in the book. I'd written it at the time. For the entire Ole Miss fans base, this was a cleansing in yes. so many ways to get rid of the negatives, to move on and not be the, hey, maybe, but you actually did it and you reached the mountaintop and you could take we are Ole Miss and kind of grind it under your boot and throw it away and all those different things. It, it's had a it's had a remarkable feel to it. I mean, as, I, as I've said, I stood there when they won and I was on the field and they've sent, they'd brought the media out and it was a strange form of writer's block because – it wasn't that I didn't know what to write. It's that I needed to write 47 things at once. You couldn't sort it in my mind. What was the, because there is a certain, and now the book brought on so much more of this and you understand this better than anyone of there's a concrete nature to it and a weight because it's permanent more than I write stories every day that, and I'd like to write more long form stuff, but the the stories I write every day, you know, they're probably going to be off the page tomorrow. There's not a lot of permanence to that, even though they're staying on the internet forever, but the, the column or the story after they won the national title was sort of like that, too, of, hey, people might frame this. People are going to do this. What what are the words that are going to encapsulate this? And I, I sat there for two hours just sort of staring at my computer screen waiting. I mean, it was it was the strangest feeling that I don't know that I've had in my in my 20 years or so of, of being a journalist. Well, I think sometimes when something so big that impacts you so uh, positively emotionally and 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 it's just. Uh, you know, the best word to describe it is, is overwhelming. You, you have to sometimes step back and just give yourself a little time, but you're right. You know, this book of yours, Resilient Rebels, this will be on a bookshelf somewhere in some library on somebody's home a hundred years from now. It, it will be. The pages may be yellowed. It may be dog-eared, <laughs> but it is, there are for, um, you know, other than having children, I think for people who write books, 
there's this this pinch of or 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 sense of immortality that it's going to be around a lot longer than you are. And when you do that sort of thing, uh, it's what I tell people all the time who try and pitch books to me is, you know, you don't want it to be a bad book <laughs> that, that outlives you. Take take the time to make it great. And uh, and so, yeah, it's uh, it's a remarkable thing. Uh, and oh, my gosh. Yeah. And, you know, all the talk about coaching changes and you can't win the big one. Well, you know, no kit coach can win the big one until they do. <laughs> and then once they do it, it's never brought up again. Yeah, you know, I, it's, it's the craziest things. What you said resonates there because when you're writing the book, you can't get overwhelmed by, hey, everybody's going to read this. It's going to be there forever. You almost have to have this crazy amount of confidence built with just a very touch of playful arrogance. Like, no, 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 I can do this. I'm the person to do this. It's, it's going to be there in a good way. It's all great. You know, there's a certain thing you have to tell yourself at some point, especially kind of in the middle of being so tired of the subject. I was really good at the beginning and I was really good at the end, but in the middle at some point I was getting up, my, my process was sort of wake up about four in the morning and write until my daughter woke up was my, was my plan every day. And there was a few days there where I'm like, I, I've been living this for months. I've been living this in some ways for 17 years. I am sick of it. And I sort of had to overcome that after a few days. You could see in my rereads where the writing had gotten worse during that period of time. I had to go back and change some things. I said, I, I'm not even writing really good content right now. I just, I had left full chapters that I knew I didn't really want to write for later when I would be a better writer to write. That, that's that's a smart thing to do. And, and you're right. It It is sort of a, uh, you you almost feel like you have schizophrenia, and and I tell people all the time that that when you're writing a book, and yours was under such duress in terms of time constraint, uh, you know I'm sure you went through some of this, but for a book to be as good as it can possibly be, for the writer, it's got to be the most important thing in their life, except maybe for their family and church. And if it's not, it's not going to be well received because they haven't put their full effort into it. What makes so many uh, authors who have a forthcoming book intolerable is because they have thought that it's the most important thing in their world. They think it should be the most important thing in everybody else's world too. And there's a real disconnect between that reality and what you, the space you have to live in, in order to complete the book. And the truth is, if it's not the most important thing, if it's not your priority, it never gets done. And, you know, not to steal Tom Hanks in uh, speaking of baseball in a league of their own, but the the reason there aren't that many good books is it's hard. <laughs> it is really hard. There are a lot of bad books out there, but uh -huh. there aren't great ones, you know, so uh, really kudos for you for getting it. Getting you. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. 
And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. You know, you got to do this. I know you enjoy all aspects of just the book world in general, publishing, writing, or whatever, but how, how much writing are you doing? I mean, what is, I mean, you, you, you grew up a writer. I mean, so what is, what, what, what is, how do you sort of scratch that itch and continue to, to follow in that process? Yeah. Well, you know, I wrote a book that came out in 2009 in the sanctuary of outcasts. And I'd worked on that for probably, well, I'd been thinking about it for about 15 years, but wrote uh, full-time for uh, about three years to complete that memoir. And then the next project I took on, I, I wrote a coffee table book. I wrote Mississippians. It's a coffee table book of all the famous Mississippians. And so I wrote very short, succinct biographies of those people. Um, but the, the main thing I do that most people don't know is I co-write or ghostwrite books for other people or with other people. Uh, I've done it for one of the top oncologists in the in the country who was misdiagnosed with uh, Lyme disease and had to have a heart transplant. And it's this uh, magnificent story of one of the insiders in the medical field telling a story about uh, how the medical field is not that great unless you're your own advocate. Uh, I, I did uh, something very similar for uh, my mother's book, I did uh, called Jane. I did it with two of Robert Kyatt's books. Uh, I just finished uh, ghostwriting a book for a guy named Larry Zonka, who was the fullback for the <laughs> Miami Dolphins for their undefeated team in 1972. And now I am doing it with a, a, a businessman in Nashville who has Ole Miss ties. And it's just about his life of growing up in absolute poverty with a terribly alcoholic father and uh, i'm not at liberty to say this gentleman's name but suffice it to say um he's now one of the most successful business people in the south uh and just sold his fourth or fifth company in the 200 million dollar range and it's this great business story that's intertwined with uh a, a memoir and life story that's that's unbelievable so I write, I help other people uh, craft their memoirs. What is Larry Zonka like in a process like that? Larry Zonka, who could, you know, 
without much effort, even at 75, smashed me into the ground. He is a sweetheart of a guy and funny. Oh my God, he's funny. So he's this, he's this brute on the field. And he's just this great storyteller who who doesn't even really want anybody to remember him so much for football as he does to go want to go out and hunt or hang out in Alaska and be, as he says, hang out with critters. I think he likes critters better than humans, but sometimes but funny, funny guy. And he would tell these great inside stories that, you know, when he would break through the line, you would always see him looking around. He knew that he wasn't going to outrun the cornerbacks or the safety. So he would wait and for the smallest defensive back and he would head for him and lower his shoulder and fall down on top of him with all of his weight and then go back into the huddle and say, throw it to Warfield. He's going to be open. <laughs> <laughs> he would just knock the breath out of these guys who are covering his receivers. And the next play, they throw a touchdown pass. What is the process of that? I mean, you almost like psychiatrists would sit down and say, talk about whatever. Is it a certain thing that day? I mean, what does this look like to go right? Well, it's it's really interesting. Most of the people that I talk to don't end up hiring me to do it because I the first thing I say is, are you willing to tell the hard stuff? Are you willing to talk about those things that you're mortified about? Are you willing to tell about your greatest failures? Are you willing to, to entertain talking about the things that are embarrassing uh, in your life? Because no amount of success and no amount of uh, you know triumph is is worth writing about unless people can experience the lows that you went through. So it is uh, very much like a, a counseling session at, at some some level. And the more they begin to trust you, the more they're willing to tell. And then it's my job to connect the dots thematically and talk about how this went. So for example, Larry Zonka played in the longest football game uh, in history at the end of 1971 against Kansas City Chiefs six and a half quarters in, in the in the in an AFL championship, AFC championship game. And at the end of it, he couldn't hold his arms up. He, he said it was the longest game of his life. Then we flash forward to him being on the Bering Sea, lost at sea, um, off the coast of Alaska, 800 miles from the closest Coast Guard cutter. And what happened that night and what they endured and how they survived and how they almost capsized and died. So he told this story where you see this, you know, strong, hulking hero of a man who anybody would say nothing scares that guy. But he he went into great detail about how it was the longest, not only the longest night of his life, but he was the most scared he'd ever been for him and his his partner and his friends. And so it's my job to get every story I can possibly get from them and then piece it together in a way that the reader feels like it naturally flows. That's a pretty good pitch because you've sold me right there. I need it now. I'm, I, I'm in. That's all, that's all it took. We're good. Good job. Well, it, thanks. It, it, it's uh, it, it's out. It just came out. It's called Head On, just the way okay. you're in. Yeah, head On, all your song. You mentioned it, your, your memoir in The Sanctuary of Outcasts, just a remarkable book. I recommend it to anybody who is who has not read it, who has not picked it up. It's available. I'm sure you can tell people where all it is there. But I've actually I have read it and listened to it from an audio book and an, and an actual uh, reading standpoint. Um, you mentioned it. You said 15 years. And I was thinking about publication date as you were saying that. What made that, in your mind, the right time to buckle down and get it out there over that two or three year period, you know, more almost two decades after the time period that was taking place? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Uh, and there, there are a couple of answers to that. The first is I wanted to make sure 
that uh, I was the best person to tell this story because there were a lot of people there. And if one of the leprosy patients wanted to tell their story, I think they should have the first right to do it. Uh, it was an unusual convergence of cultures, 500 inmates, 130 leprosy patients, an ancient order of nuns, a Franciscan monk, prison guards all thrown into this colony. Um, the, the second reason was I was I could tell you what happened and who said what, but the search for meaning, why that mattered in my life or in, in the life of the people that I encountered took me a long time to, to figure out and to, to be able to verbalize and, and put down on the page. And, and also the, the third thing is I had been so reckless as a young man trying to build this magazine empire. I wanted to make sure that in the recounting and retelling of the story that I didn't hurt anybody else. And so I spent a lot of time going to talk to uh, investors, former vendors, uh, bankers, people who were involved personally to talk to them about what I was doing and sort of get their blessing for them to be included in the book. And, uh, you know, time heals a lot with with one exception. Everybody said, oh, my God, please do this. It's such a was such a remarkable time and place. And what a what a privilege that you, for that you actually got to be there, even though it was in prison and you have paid your debt and uh, go for it. So there were a lot of reasons that it took so long. But, um, you know, and, and the other reason is, as you know, we live in a social media climate. And I can remember I, I kept I kept uh, records of the worst reviews and the worst comments after. So the Birmingham news uh, paper wrote a column about it. And the very first comment was, way to make a quick buck off the suffering of others, you elitist asshole. <laughs> and so, you know, I mean, I didn't want to, I didn't want to seem like it was like, Oh, let me get out and do this as soon as I can. So I can make a yeah. bunch of, you know, I, I, I was, I was trying to tell a good story. Uh, and, and if any of them sold after that, fine, but that wasn't the, uh, the, the, the real thing. But, and the, by the way, the, the best headline was from the Dallas morning news. I've got it uh, hanging on my wall. It says, uh, lepers teach humility to a pariah. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it was, and I knew going into it that there would be some people who rolled their eyes and didn't think it was uh, uh, genuine or sincere, but, you know, it's, it's a fascinating thing. And, and you probably won't hear this because yours is so good and positive and, and anybody who picks it up is going to is not going to be looking to tear your book down but for memoirs and novels and that sort of thing it's the same black words on the same white paper and different people read it and they bring their own stuff to it and some give it five stars and some say it's the worst piece of trash that they've ever read that's not that's not on me that's 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 i did the best i could do and people people are going to read it and bring their own life experience to it it's a good point because had you gotten out and read it, I mean, written it immediately, A, you didn't know all of your own personal implications at that point, but B, it would have come off like, hey, I'm just exposing this crazy place and all the people there and here, this is what we're doing. When you when you got to the point you did, was it therapeutic in a way to go back through that and write it? Or did you have to get to a kind of place where you were past that to write it. Does that make sense? Like, was it, was it therapeutic in the process or was it more about what was needed to get to the time to then write it? Yeah, it was absolutely therapeutic. And, and it was not only because I'd taken the time to figure out what it really meant to me um, 
you know, but it was when you can when you can put down on words why something impacted you in a certain way and who this person was, especially if this person was giving or helpful or wise. Uh, you know, we whether you write a book or not, as we go through life, we have to create the story of our life. It's typically called the hero's journey. And we're all going to have ups and we're going to have downs and we're going to have, you know, mortifying moments and moments where we're, you know, so proud we we're, we're in tears. And so to, to be able to do that about a specific period of time in my life, and I only flashed back, I never flashed forward at all in that book. It was remarkably therapeutic. And, and I, I couldn't uh, do anything but recommend it for anybody, even if you never want to publish it, to put it down in words and try and figure out why something impacted you the way it did, how it changed you, what you saw, if you had any insights or epiphanies is a is a powerful thing. I think people who are in counseling and therapy, that's what their therapists help them do is, is figure out the story of their life. And uh, and that can prevent you from doing things in the future and keep you directed in on a path that uh, that is that is good and healthy for you and your family and the people that you love. So, uh, yeah, it was it was absolutely that. And, and of- with with these men that I primarily men that I work with, men and women in ghostwriting their book, I listen to them and help craft a narrative and they go, oh, my God, that's that's right. You know, Robert Kayat in his first book, The Education of a Lifetime, his father couldn't change the way he did business as a supervisor. He just he would get cash for for uh, asphalting a church lot and then go to the high school and pass it out to the football players who didn't have money to go to the football game and buy, buy lunch. And there was no accounting for it. And Robert said, you know, my dad just couldn't change. Then when he came to Ole Miss and we were waving the Confederate flag and we had Colonel Reb and we were playing Dixie, you know, it didn't really dawn on him until we were writing the book that, oh, my God, if if Ole Miss doesn't change, they're going to have the same fate my father did. Mm -hmm. And so it's those those insights that you get in putting it on the page, telling the story and writing it that make it so powerful. One thing that I really appreciated when you're writing in that book is that as you're talking about the characters and the obviously real people, it's a true story, is everything was built around your perceptions and emotions and motivations toward them, not putting their emotions on paper because you can't know that. You can't do one of those things. What was sort of the relationship even, because I, I deal with this in, in my world to some extent, but you know, even, you know, did you get permission, maybe permission is not the right word, but even you know, your children are interspersed throughout the book in a lot of ways. And you're careful to say, hey, this is how I felt about them in these situations, not necessarily what they were going through. Because a lot of times when I'm writing or I talk, I mean, almost 10 hours a week with different podcasts, I'm always, I, I don't mind mentioning my daughter, but I want to make sure it's mentioning her in my story, not telling her story. And there's a difference there. And I found that really kind of intriguing about how some of the ways, some of the things were, were written in your book. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a, it's a great question. And I think the the first thing that you need to do, if you're going to write a memoir that has any credibility is you've got to be harder on yourself than you are on anybody else. Mm-hmm. And you've got to take accountability for what you did. You can't blame anybody else. You can't settle scores. You can't get revenge. If you do that, you're writing it for the wrong reason. And so, yeah, when, whenever it was possible, I went to family, friends, even my kids told them what I was going to write about. And, uh, you know, that uh, you, you can't be perfect. They're going to be, my father was not particularly happy away the way I portrayed my grandmother. 
Uh, we got over it pretty quickly. <laughs> we talked about it and we moved on. But uh, it's really hard to write about family, friends, and real events um, and not ruffle somebody's feathers. It, here, here's what I've, I've told people in the past is when you write about someone, you might think that you were writing this fantastic uh, details and portrait of them. But if, if you ever seen somebody look at their own school days pictures and you go, oh, that's a good picture of you. And they go, no, it's not. Look, my left ear is big and yeah, my yeah, eyes yeah. aren't equal. You know, So everybody's hypercritical of their own photograph. They typically are hypercritical of their own portrayal on the page. Why didn't you say this? This is where this would be more accurate. So I let a lot of the people who were alive read their passages, which is for journalists a no-no, but for a memoirist who's in a relationship with those people, it's fine. And a lot of times they said, well, this isn't right. This is what actually happened. And it's like, oh my God, that's even better. So, you know, it's, uh, I don't think you need to be afraid of it. And Lord, the, you know, if, if I can keep from hurting somebody's feelings uh, by doing that, that's, that's what I'm uh, going to opt to do. Book of that, that book available anywhere yeah. for the most anywhere. part is in local books for, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I, anywhere, what but, I assume. You know, I always say support your local bookstore. So, uh, sure. you know, Square Books, Burks, Reeds, Lemuria, uh, Lorelei, Main Street Books, Pastor Shane Books, and Mississippi, <laughs> those would be the good places to go. Turn okay. Yeah, yeah you, you know, you, you hit that. And I ran into this even in what small thing I did um, is you would ask three people something and they'd all have a different answer as far as what that situation was. I mean, it can be a team huddle after a game. And I go – Hey, what Mike say? Oh, yeah, I remember that well. Here's what he said. And then I asked somebody else, oh, yeah, here's what he said. And I said, well, hell, what did he actually say? I don't know. And then figuring out, and you asked Mike, and his version was different. And I go, what goes in the book? Because I can't go, well, he said this, and he said this, and he said this. And I would sit there and be a pretzel and stare at the screen and go, I don't know, just pick the one that's most interesting, I guess. Yeah, I mean, beats I, me. It is, it is all subjective. Trust me. Memory is when I wrote Sanctuary, I wrote the first draft without reviewing my notes and, and letters. And I went back. I misremembered so much because every time you open up a memory, it changes. It's like adding to the file. And it's a, it's a fascinating thing. Good thing for you is not too much time had passed, but sure. they still didn't remember it the same way. So you wrote it without notes the first time? You literally just <laughs> sat down and went at it? The first draft, the first draft. Then I went back and looked at all the notes. I mean, I, this was a long process. It took me about mm -hmm. two, three years. And then I would go, oh, my God, that wasn't what he said. He said this. But, uh, you know, it was really great to have those as a reference. But I didn't want to get bogged down in the details. I wanted to write it based on the way I felt and remembered it and then fill in all the specifics and details and facts and get it fact checked. Because you thought it was just a long form story at first while you were there, right? Yeah. 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 And way way bigger than that. So what's 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 next? Getting close to the end. I appreciate the time. Uh, do you have sort of a notebook somewhere with possibilities for nonfiction books? I mean, what is what is a what 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 is what you do look like as far as trying to plan out future future things? Well, you know, um, I wish it were different, but the first question we have to ask is, can we make money on this book? If not, we go out of, of business. Then second is, can this book be made great? So the, the book that I'm working on right now that I'm most excited about is a collaboration with Rick Cleveland. Oh, wow. It's okay. basically going to be a Mississippi football book of records. It's going to be every record from team individuals from high school to pro to junior college to college to the small colleges. And we are going to put in, Rick is doing the, the feature stories and I'm doing 
the statistics with the caveat that, you know, some, some we just won't be able to get. But uh, it's going to be a book that when you flip through it, it's a history of the most interesting, uh, best record holders uh, in Mississippi football from beginning to end. Wow. Yeah. How it's long is that going to take? A long time. <laughs> <laughs> has there, I, I, we, we knew this was a topic that was going to resonate with people, but has this, has your, your coffee table book, has this process exceeded your expectations on just reception at this point? I know, I mean, I'm not going to give it away. You and I talked about, you know, things selling well and people being very uh, receptive to it. Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 it has. Uh, in fact, we had to reorder. We've already reordered and we'll get the the restock right after Thanksgiving. And I think we'll probably sell out before then. Um, because what you have is this unbelievable enthusiasm for, from the baseball fans. It is a commemorative book. Um, you know, we have the coaches and players being willing to sign it and we haven't even gotten into holiday sales yet. Mm. I mean, you know, we, we haven't even talked about people just, what am I going to give somebody for Christmas? Who's an Ole Miss fan. So, uh, the answer is yes, it has far exceeded my expectations. And I think the reason for that is a lot of people who are buying this book and same will be for years are not necessarily huge book buyers they are sports fans and so you know at that at that event in square books i saw a bunch of people looking around it was clear they'd never been in off square books before and that's a great thing good sure. for them for buying a book and good for them to for us for exposing them to the bookstore yeah it, it is a piece of memorabilia as much as it's anything else and it's another part of something they're very emotionally connected to and is it, is resonant with them throughout the uh, throughout the process so i know you got some stuff coming up where uh where will you be over the next few weeks and what's uh, what's planned at this point? Well, we've got uh, we've got book signings at Reed's uh, Gumtree Bookstore in Tupelo. And I think that's uh, next Thursday. I'll be there with Jeff and I think a, a, a player or two will be there. But I, I don't want to say that for sure. But check the Reed's website or the Tupelo bookstores. And then toward the end of the month, we're going to be in Greenwood at the Greenwood Open Houses uh, at Turn Row, and I'm not sure about those dates. And of course, you're you're always welcome to come. Do you know those dates? I, I was I thought Turn Row was the 17th, but now when you said that, I may be wrong. So I'm not I'm sure. Reads is for sure next Thursday. I am doing that, and you're being there. Yeah. So I yeah. mean, it's and I, I will tell the viewers we we've, we've got we've got two books here about the same subject, but uh, <laughs> I don't think either one of us feel like they do anything but complement the other. Yeah. So we're actually doing signings together. Yeah, I, I would love to wrap them up with bows and just sell them as bundle packages to people would be would be fantastic. I think we should. I think we yeah. should. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's the process there. So we'll do that. We are also uh, in the plans to be together at uh, about down in Jackson again prior to the end of the year. And we'll obviously spread the word whenever we know those those dates and activities for those uh, those things. But yes, reads for sure next Thursday for uh for that one. But I, uh, I really appreciate the time. Like I said, I, I don't know that I could have done it without you. You gave me some confidence at the beginning and just some instruction when I was completely lost on the topic. So I really appreciate it. The, uh, the time today, again, your book's available everywhere. It's fantastic. You your coffee table, for your Christmas gifts. It is uh, well put together, hardback that can be uh, treasured and looked through from time to time for a while over something that, again, has made such an emotional connection to people with Ole Miss winning the national championship. So, Neil, really appreciate it. And uh, as this thing continues, let's uh, let's keep talking. You got it, Chase. Thanks, buddy. Right. And congratulations Thanks. on your book, too. Proud of you. Thank you. The headlines remind us daily the world is a dangerous place. 
The elites in charge say everything's fine, stop noticing, but you know better. And your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. My Patriot Supply has helped over three million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour three-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com.